Hello and welcome. I'm glad to bring you another episode and look forward to doing so more regularly as I figure out how to do that. There's a difficulty in getting the right people, particularly in person, based as I am here in Australia. What I've found is that when there are international authors and speakers of interest on tour, their time is very limited and generally more mainstream appearances are preferred. So I'm considering more seriously having conversations over Skype or what have you, though this isn't what I'd prefer. And I think for the kinds of conversations I'm looking to have, the task is made all the more difficult without truly being able to look someone in the eyes and express with the body. But regardless of this, I'm as committed as ever to building a forum for meaningful conversations about important ideas of individual and civilizational significance. I have the highest aspirations for this project I can conceive, and there are many moving parts to get right. Perhaps you're tuning in to get to the content immediately, so I'll have to ask for your patience for just a few minutes, as I haven't spoken directly to listeners in what feels like some time. I'd like to tell you about some of the things I'm doing, some other podcasts I'd like to recommend, and recurrent meetup events I'll be hosting. First, and recently, I've been writing about meaning and about navigating the experiential landscape of what you might call liminal consciousness, a consciousness relaxed or dissolved of its ordinary paradigms of secured or ordered relation to the world. The relationship, if you like, between the known and unknown. This has been a central interest for the better part of six years or so, though I have been interested in meaning or the sometimes felt apparent lack thereof since I was a boy. I think this is something that really we all involve ourselves with to some degree. Perhaps what differentiates our individual approach to meaning is the degree of attention we are willing and perhaps courageous enough to put towards it. Courageous might be harsh there, it's not easy to confront the realities of life, but courage is required. Anyway, I've also been writing about nitrous oxide as an exemplar of the dissolution of ordinary consciousness and its mysterious feeling of mystical insight into the truth of all being. <laughs> I've been trying to see if I can add anything to the insights made by William James more than a century ago. So far I suspect not though I will put something out in due time, which I hope will be an enjoyable read. I'll send preliminaries of this writing to the mailing list long before I publish somewhere, so make sure you sign up to that on the website. And on that note, I welcome any emails back from readers interested in sharing their thoughts or pointing out mistakes or areas that lack clarity. I read all the emails sent to me and reply to everyone. I've also been writing about the Voice Club project, the philosophy that underlies it, and I'm closer to a more formal presentation of this philosophy than I have been previously. Rather than delve into the philosophy now, let me instead just clarify my aims. I am, we are, creating a forum and community built to platform meaningful conversations about matters of individual and civilizational importance, meaningful in as profound a manner as can be achieved about ideas, practices, and issues most critical to adaptive sense-making in the modern world. This is and will require continued innovation, space, support, and alignment across numerous individuals with varied skill sets. The forum I have crystallizing an image requires a host of embodied experiential art forms and practices. It requires method as yet not mastered anywhere, as far as I can tell. 
The reason this is so critical is that as individuals and as citizens of an evolving world, we require meaningful, authentic, creative dialogue capable of advancing the sense we make of the world. The sense we make must connect with our capacity for rational theory making and the reality of our embodied spirituality. We must bring the knowing how, the what it feels like, the what it's like to be in relationship with, into harmony, in process, with our sense making about what the world consists of, from a more traditional, scientific, empirical, propositional, belief-forming perspective. This project must live, however, by providing unique value to you each step of the way. And so it's my ambition to host public-facing conversations as simply the focal point of a broader gathering of individuals who will participate in their own conversations. This will be the facilitation of a forum for you to participate in your own meaning-making. The standards will be set high. The upper limit of what's possible is not clear, but it is interesting. It's very interesting. Finally, I'd like to recommend some other podcasts and channels I have tremendous respect for. Firstly, Rebel Wisdom, based in London and best watched on YouTube, are releasing, in my humble opinion, banger after banger. Quality interviews with rebellious thinkers making waves in the current zeitgeist. Second, a podcast I recently discovered named the Intellectual Explorers Club, based in Toronto. Both Rebel Wisdom and the Intellectual Explorers Club hold events that can be attended, so I recommend checking them out if you're London or Toronto-based. Another excellent podcast is the Future Thinkers podcast. Finally, I recommend the currently in-release lecture series by John Viveyaki, a cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. I think I mentioned him also in the podcast you're about to listen to. I've organised a cool spot for about 60 people to watch these lectures with me on a weekly basis in Melbourne and to discuss them afterwards. The lecture series is titled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Now, that's about that. Thank you for staying with me to the episode then, recorded in early February this year in front of a live audience. I'm joined by the very interesting Melissa Warner, Executive Officer of Mind Medicine Australia, a graduate of neuroscience, an accomplished meditator and careful shepherd of altered states of consciousness and psychedelic medicines. You will hear about Mind Medicine Australia from Melissa shortly, and you may have encountered her before in previous episodes of Voice Club. I recommend you check out her conversation with Rick Doblin once you're all done here. Okay, thank you for staying with me. And here we go. All right, Melissa, what are we bloody doing here? This is a podcast and a... Uh, trying to figure out, still if it's a conversation or, or how it all works when there's an audience involved, because something that is so important is to be flowing with each other when you converse, but it's not just about us, it's about everybody here, and I don't know exactly how to work that out other than to sort of do it and see how it goes, so... Melissa, thank you for doing this with me. I thank know. you, Tim, for organizing it and getting everyone to come along. And thanks, everyone, for being here. Yeah. Yeah, it's been something in the works for a little while. I think, given we will be talking about psychedelics as the fulcrum of well, this whole conversation, it's worth noting to begin with that neither myself, Voice Club, Shifties, and I think... I'm correct in speaking for Melissa and Mind Medicine Australia as well. None of us support the use of illegal substances. We're here to have a mature conversation about 
the scientific research into these substances and a conversation about how, as individuals and society, we should relate to these substances. But it's not an advocacy for use of any illegal substances. Okay, so that aside, uh, my name's Tim. My background's in philosophy, but I'm interested in many different things. I'm interested in psychedelics because they're very interesting. And Melissa is joining me for this conversation today. And Melissa, I don't think I can introduce you as well as you can introduce yourself. So if you like, perhaps introduce yourself. Hi everyone, I'm Melissa Warner, and I'm the Executive Officer of My Medicine Australia, a new charity created to create a pathway forward for transformative therapies, including psychedelics, regulatory approved and research-backed psychedelic therapy in Australia. Along with that, I'm also on the Management Committee of PRISM, or Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. And you may have heard in the news recently that PRISM do have their first trial with psilocybin at St. Vincent's Hospital treating end-of-life anxiety, which is really exciting, and a fruition of, a, of about 10 years, trying to create the change in the uh, awareness in the medical community to allow mm -hmm. this to happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a big old project. First of all, are we audible for everyone in the room? The guys at the back, can you give me a, a bit louder? Okay, Melissa, make sure you speak right into that mic. And Derek or Tommy or something, could we have Tommy? Do you mind shutting that door? Thank you. All right, that should be, well, that's even louder on my part. And Melissa, I think that should be good. Can I ask a question to the audience? Sure. I just want to know who here knows someone who suffers from mental illness. So yeah, everybody. Oh, that's and everyone. does anyone know someone who has benefited from psychedelics with their mental health? Okay, I just wanted to see the numbers there. That looked about 80%, oh, and there's probably about 50 people in this room or something like that maybe, which is quite interesting. Also, and you're not on camera, but um, who has taken psychedelics here? Right, so almost everyone. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, who understands psychedelics? <laughs> well, there's a couple brave hands. Um, I definitely can't raise mine, although I'm interested in the process of inquiry. Cool, okay. Well, Melissa, I am wondering the right way to begin this because you are a fascinating person and someone who I'm so glad has come into my life. I really enjoyed getting to know you. And what you're doing in the world now, that can't be fully separated from your life and your experiences. And so in the first part of this conversation, I'd like us to get to two broad places. One of them is to cover what we can say about what the, the latest in psychedelic science can tell us about the efficacy of psychedelic assisted therapies and perhaps a little bit about the implications for understanding the brain. But I also want to get closer to why it is that you find yourself so impassioned to move this forward in Australia. So where do you think the right place to begin is? Maybe I'll start with a little bit on psychedelics and get into my personal journey a bit after that. Okay. But I guess 
it goes back to my first question to the audience, which was how many people know someone with mental illness? And I was expecting it to be everybody because 45% of Australians currently, well, will experience mental illness in their, in their lifetime and one in five currently are suffering from mental illness, which is pretty staggering. I think it's 30% of men and 40% of women will experience depression at some point in their lives. So if it's not the person sitting next to you, it's you. So that's quite affecting. Yes, and there's many different ways to, I mean, how do you even, one of the toughest things, and I can speak to depression a little bit, there's a feeling of a lack of, a lack of options. Like there's a diminishment of your own agency. And there's also, at least in my case, a lack of connection to something worth moving towards. And now in an interesting way, something worth moving towards often takes its root in something within. Like there's an ember of life that you carry and are in relationship to that I think projects itself out into the world. And so you kind of lose connection to that and then you lose connection to what that needs to be and how you need to manifest that in the world. And then on top of that, you lose a kind of sense of options and then you also lose an agency to act this on anything at all. This is all very true. And you're going about it from a very psychological and philosophical viewpoint an experiential viewpoint, mm -hmm. which isn't really the viewpoint of current treatment, which is more so a chemical bath of the brain, or while well, we have this hypothesis of increasing serotonin for depression, or needing to increase GABA, uh, the more relaxing neurotransmitter for anxiety. But that is not necessarily all it takes. Right. There is a person, and then there is a story Christ. So what we find with traditional therapies is that they do work in some people. It's not too much more than placebo, but they do work in some people. But when you withdraw them, generally that person relapses. And also there's a whole host of side effects mm -hmm. with regular medications. And you have to take them every single day. I think one of the most striking things about psychedelic therapy is in the trials after just one or two doses of psilocybin, people experience a relief of their depression that lasts up to, well, so far we've had follow-ups for three months, six months, and a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen uh, quite a remarkable amount of study in the last 10 to 15 years into substances like psilocybin, MDMA, also ketamine, ibogaine to a lesser extent, although that's also something that's proved very efficacious. For addiction. Right, right. So yeah, these different substances seem to have different niches of effect for um, across really a range of conditions from addiction to depression to PTSD. Also some stuff on OCD as well, which is quite peculiar because OCD is really strange as well. Well, is it? It's a, a, so a kind of cognitive rigidity. Right. OCD. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think everything's strange. So OCD yeah, everything is just is one, Everything is both curious real, and, being normal and, strange, yeah. and, and strange. It's the nature of the world. But I think a, a pattern in depression, anxiety, in obsessive compulsive disorder is a cognitive restriction, a right. inflexibility of the mind, a patterned way of behaving. Yes. And this goes back to Tim's first comment about the person and the trajectory. And well, 
if you were if you were born to a family where there was domestic abuse, if uh, you experienced a trauma growing up, if you were a soldier on the front lines of war, the thing with the brain is it's a wonderful learning machine, but the imprints of our experience live on through our neuronal connections. Mm-hmm. So storylines propagate. That's why we see survivors of childhood trauma fulfilling the same old storylines, whether it be domestic abuse, entering, domestic, entering violent or abusive relationships repetitively because that's what their brain was set up to attach to, to relate to, to feel familiar with. So it comes down to changing our storylines. How do we change and adapt and more consciously choose who we want to be? Right. And I feel that that is the opportunity and the great therapeutic power behind psychedelics. They've shown to increase cognitive flexibility. And we see in brain studies, brain imaging using fMRI, we see an area of the brain called the default mode network, which is along the midline, which is correlated to our rumination, our sense of self, our storyline. We find it active when people are daydreaming or thinking about the short-term future, short-term past. We find disintegration within this neuro, with this network. Right. So when the psychedelic experience kicks in... Acutely, and, yes. And, and what were the... Disintegration. So I know these studies largely come out of Imperial College London, is that right? For the ones that show the increased entrop- entropic state of the brain. That's right, right. yes. And what was, were they using psilocybin or LSD? So, well, they've used LSD and psilocybin LSD with the fMRI studies. Okay, okay. So to synthesize that, is it, if am I right in saying something like psilocybin and LSD at a certain threshold create a, a state of entropy in the brain, a, dim, a, a diminishment of, is that a word, diminishment? A diminishment of the default mode network, which to understand it from an experiential point of view is, is kind of like a, a, a removal of the, the rigidity that you yourself move through the world and experience the world with. So It could be perhaps what underpins this opportunity to reevaluate your self-storyline. Right, right. So something that jumps out to me still staying in the therapeutic realm there is in a state of uh, increased possibility, there's more connections going on, there's something about approaching previous experiences you've had that are distinctly negative or traumatic, there's something about approaching those in a state of more possibility that enables a resetting of how you store those experiences. Is that the right kind well, of... Well, your interpretive framework is right. given a, potentially a reset. Potentially a reset. But okay. we also find that there is not just this disintegration of the networks but in the default mode network, and they're centered usually in the posterior and anterior cingulate cortex, which is quite close to the limbic system, which you might be aware is a, an emotional hotspot of the brain. Not just is there is this disintegration within this t- usually tightly correlated network, but there's also more communication in diverse regions of the brain. Right. We also see a, a few days, or I think a, even a day after treatment, there's actually again an increase in the correlation of the default mode network. And this may be interpreted as a reclarifying 
or redefining period of integration of what you experienced at the peak of the psilocybin journey. Right, that all makes that all makes sense. Although, so I guess to redefine yourself, you have to lose yourself for a short period. Mm, yeah, losing at least the um, the entrenched nature. Mm, the entrenched of nature of these storylines. One of the wonderful metaphors that's used out of from one of the researchers at Imperial College, Robin Carhart Harris, is this idea that if you have a mountain where somebody is skiing from down from the peaks. There are pathways that are quite well worn, that are really easy to go down, that allow you to go super fast. And then there are more windy, unknown pathways where you have to sort of plow through and go more slowly, less well-tread. Psychedelics allow these less well-tread pathways to become easier. So those habitual, learned ways of being aren't as restrictive. You can right. choose an alternative way. Well, what way should we choose? <laughs> this is a very, very difficult question. And it's one of those questions that I don't know if there's, like a generic answer can only get you so far and you start talking about philosophy quite quickly because we all have individual lives. And while there are, in an important way, like deep patterns that we all have within us are in relation to and we share those how they actually manifest out in all our individual lives are quite different so here then we get to a point where maybe we can talk about well i'm i'm interested to know how you would tell me now how have psychedelics been of benefit to you well i guess that first of all they were the concept of psychedelics was inspiring to me. I guess I came across them in a, uh, not, not the most typical way. It was actually in my first class of psychology at Melbourne Uni in my studies. In actually the hall that we'll be having a, the launch of My Medicine Australia at next week with David Nutt, who is the researcher behind the Imperial Trials. And that very same lecture hall was the first place I heard about psychedelics and it was through a recommended reading by the lecturer. This lecturer would put music and visualizations as you entered the lecture hall, which at 9am on a Monday morning in your first semester of university was a, was a really nice treat for getting out of bed um, so early. And yeah, that, that was his character. And then he would proceed with the lecture. And one of the recommended readings was Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. Has anyone read? Yeah. Who's read The Doors? A couple of reluctant hands. Yeah, there's a few more. So, Doors of Perception were, was written by Aldous Huxley after his first experience with mescaline, one of the psychedelic compounds uh, extracted from peyote. And he described in this book mescaline to be of an artist's drug or chemical. He also said that psychedelics and the experience was of the plane of art and of perpetual creation, and that one day they may serve to heal mental illness. And at the time I was caught between the crossroads of wanting to be a visual artist, but quite attracted to philosophy and science. And here was this field, this chemical, this medicine, 
We can say that now that back then it was less clear. This medicine that had the potential to connect one both to art, meaning, and also heal. And I was spellbound by this interesting word I hadn't heard before. Uh, Aldous Huxley actually um, was involved in the naming of psychedelics with the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond. They were, cor they were corresponding about their experiences in these early days of discovery. And Humphrey Osmond wrote a, a little short poem, something along the lines of, to fall in hell or rise angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic, and thus the name was chosen. And this strange new word did inspire me. I transferred from arts to science, decidedly to study neuroscience, and somehow become a psychedelic researcher, even though there was no such field in Australia. And there were few studies, well, there actually were quite a number, but there were few universities that had psychedelic research programs. So I was frequently told this was quite the aspirational, if not absurd, dream when I was brave enough to share it with somebody. But I went on, and I loved neuroscience. I loved learning about the uh, undercurrents, the biochemical undercurrents of consciousness, as close as we can get anyway, because there's such a, a gap there, obviously, with the hard problem and easy problem of consciousness yes, yes. is the science and your correlates versus the experience. But I love this field, and I had an aspiration of being a doctor, so I was doing all the, all the correct subjects, studying the GAMSAT, and unfortunately, in my last semester of uni, I had a traumatic experience occur, which was quite a shock to my system. And I went from being a high-performing student to someone who couldn't really leave the house. And I dropped out of university. And I had been a, a goody-two-shoes most of my life, and I had not really known anyone even though I was tempted, I was aware of the illegal status. I was aware of the potential of risk of not knowing where the substance came from. So I hadn't, even though I was intellectually inspired, I hadn't taken psychedelics until this point where I experienced this trauma. And I was able to receive some guidance from overseas because there are places where psychedelics are legal and where, treat and where therapy is supported. And... After those profound meetings with these long-researched um, substances, medicines, I was able to return to my degree and complete it. And that really solidified my dream <laughs> mm. to be involved in, the, in the, the, the growth of the knowledge and the understanding of these substances so we can create programs of therapeutic benefit for everyone who needs them mm. or who could benefit from them. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful story and I know there's an awful lot more to it. I am tempted to share a story of my own. My story is a lot shitter. My, <laughs> my story involved going to, um, well actually the story probably started when, when my parents split up and I moved to Australia as like a posh English kid at 11 but I'm um, into semi-rural Brisbane. 
But then at 17, I went traveling with uh, my best mate at the time, and we went to Amsterdam, and we bought fuckloads of truffles. <laughs> and we took them. It was a very strange experience. It's not ideal to take psychedelics in a place where you're in some physical danger. We were in the red light district and we were in an alley. People were walking past and trying to um, sell us more things in various animated ways. I remember clinging on to whatever I could around me because my sense of reality was being utterly destroyed. This was an interesting experience and is one that I think many people can relate to when they come to psychedelics because as much as there is great potential for benefit, and we know this, this is essentially established fact that psychedelics are efficacious tools for the treatment of various mental afflictions. But they are a powerful tool that needs to be handled with care and with maturity. This brings us, I think, neatly to the um, concepts of set and setting. Now, I know that as we saw from the hands before, a lot of people here are familiar with psychedelics. And so, you know, I don't want to be sort of banal in talking about some things that maybe many of you already feel like you know quite well. But the thing is, set and setting are really quite deep concepts, actually, when you consider what they mean. Because life is very strange and the context we live in is also, well, very strange and constantly of our own making. We're involved in how we show up and... We also come from a long lineage of culture and evolutionary processes which bestow us various settings that are helpful or not. So with that vague kind of introduction there, Melissa, can you tell me what set and setting are from at least how they're understood from a, from a scientific perspective? Definitely, and I want to restate, there was a really interesting journal article that came out, I think, last year, from, again, from the Imperial College team, and the title was Psychedelics, the Importance of Context, because set and setting really is key. Set being the mental mindset you come to with the experience, your expectations, your preparation work, the story, what you want out of the experience, and setting being the environment. Because one thing that is true about psychedelics is they increase your receptivity to the environment. Your receptivity is, to the yeah, environment. Which is, which is one of the ways they facilitate change. And this mm -hmm. is your internal environment, your set, and your external environment, the setting. Your flexibility and, your, and a, a newfound way to relook and re-see and reinterpret these things is one of the hallmarks. But because of that, in a dangerous or in a unsafe or anxiety-inducing or maybe even anesthetic environment, mm. these features are enhanced and your experience of them is enhanced, which is why both preparation work, integration work, post the experience, and the environment itself is really important. In trials, psychedelic therapy occurs in a, in a very different environment to the standard doctor's office or hospital room. It's in a room that is often full of art, comfy seats, a male and female therapist pair. You close your eyes, you have your favorite music on. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really key to create an environment that facilitates 
the changes you want to see in yourself. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. And crucially, an environment that enables you to attend to your inner life without fear that the external world or your sort of baseline physiological concerns are uh, sort of not taken care of is a problematic environment to say that in a way that's not so convoluted um you gotta have your shit sorted out about you to engage with your experience mm, and i think um tim's experience with trying truffles in amsterdam it's a good case in point of what we don't really want to have happen in australia i don't necessarily think it's wise to have psilocybin available at the mm-hmm. well i i've been to amsterdam and it looks like the equivalent of a 7-eleven mm-hmm. i definitely mm-hmm. think that they should be available for people who want to create change in their lives transformative experiences where people move and grow in their existence and then their, their well-being and talking about therapy and well-being i think uh, another point related to, to set and setting to set is the work of the positive psychology field such as, if you're familiar with the concepts of flow. Mm, flow is interesting. Flow is interesting. Flow was written by a psychologist called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And it's quite interesting when you look at high performers, which, like he did. He studied the lives of high performers, creatives, and kind of worked backwards and noted what were the condition of their lives. What traits did they have in common? What were their traits when they were working? Psychological traits, environmental traits. So what was their set and setting? that allowed them to flourish in the ways that they did. And he observed three key transformative skills. And they are unconscious self-assurance. And this is this concept of feeling like you are connected to something, feeling like there is a trajectory you can walk, and a hope that things can get better. And that's done in preparation work. That's done in your intention setting before a psychedelic experience. So is this like a belief in your own competence? To a degree. And Mm -hmm. particularly, I think, in the context of therapy, to heal or to recover. Mm -hmm. So that you are capable of getting better. Without that vision of the trajectory that we're heading towards, how are we really going to get there? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a key one. So establishment of goals. Establishment of goals. Like goals that are like reasonably attainable. Yes. And good, right. Or even, and, or even just a, uh, a belief that you can change. Okay. And then there's also an interconnectedness to the world. So not seeing yourself as separate from the world. Mm-hmm. Noticing that you're part of this ecosystem, a social ecosystem, an environmental ecosystem. And it can even probably go further than that, that we are, if we start speaking in the Carl Sagan sense of... Um, same atoms that we were made from once came from stars, that things are interconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, human beings are not, it's not even a coherent concept that you can have of, of a human being without simultaneously like recognizing our embeddedness in everything. I mean, if there are no plants to tend to our atmosphere, then we're in big trouble. There's no separate you. It just it can't, it can't be as a thing. You have your own influence in your space. But as a, as, a, as a separate, fixed thing, entirely conceptually divorced, it's like that can't, that can't be sustained. There, ha- there is links between you and everything else out oh, there. Oh, yeah, an awareness of how you are connected, who you're connected to, and a willingness to connect. 
And um, this it's called this trait an orientation to the world. And it's quite interesting because psychedelics have been noted to increase the, uh, a, a psychometric trait called nature-relatedness, which is pretty much an awareness that you are connected to the world and that, and also with nature-relatedness being something you care about the natural world and it gives you enjoyment. Psychedelics tend to increase this, this sense of connection to the world around us, which I think is a really interesting point, this correlation between these transformative skills and what psychedelics do encourage in a person. There's also uh, the third trait is the observance or the seeking of new solutions. Mm -hmm. So the three transformative skills are an orientation towards the world, seeking of new solutions, and remember, what did I say was the first one again? Do you remember, guys? Unconscious self-assurance, right? That's Goal right. setting and competence. That's a really important one. Yeah, the, the relationship between flow and psychedelics is interesting. There's something about the reduction of self-recursive concerns so that you can just attend and be present with the task at hand that is crucial to, well, that is, in a sense, being in this, in this state of flow. And that's um, one of the traits of depression, is to be more locked into the internal dialogue, to that voice of narration, to that right. storyline, that entrapping storyline, right. versus an orientation towards right. the world, right. and a willingness to let it in. So some of you might be familiar with a guy called Stephen Kotler. He wrote a book called um, The Rise of Superman, I think, something like that. And Stealing Fire. And Stealing Fire with a guy called Jamie Wheel. Is that correct? Like these are really interesting thinkers at the moment. They have a lot of content online. I really suggest checking it out. On the topic of suggesting content, there's a cognitive scientist, his professor at the University of Toronto. His name is John Vervaeke, V-E-R-V-A-E-K-E. And he's at the moment doing a series where he's talking about the meaning crisis and he's talking a lot about flow, there's psychedelics in there as well. I really recommend checking that out too if you want to, I think, be present with some of the most cutting edge thinking about how to tie together all of these stuff, all of this stuff that if you treat it separately can feel like sometimes a little mystical or strange it's really, it's really good stuff to check out. And just to define flow for anyone who's unsure, it's, that it's also called optimal experience. Or when you're so absorbed in activity that you sort of forget the daily concerns of the self and you're one with whatever you're doing, which I think has to a degree a correlation in phenomenology or experience to peak experience, which is known to be a healing factor for psychedelics. Actually, we know that participants who have greater or higher scores on peak experience, also known as mystical experience, tend to have higher scores of relaxing or of removing their depressive outlook. They're, they get, they're, they're, they're more improved. Their clinical outcomes are higher the greater the experience of a peak experience or mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And that is feeling at connected to the environment and sensation of insight, of awe, beauty, and wonder. So I think that's really another interesting correlation between these states. So we can learn how to approach psychedelic experiences both 
in therapy and in your life through looking at things like positive psychology and ways of bridging that vision that we have for ourselves in the future. So speak about the future then, at least like maybe a bit more concretely now about where we're at in Australia with respect to this current state of psychedelic research and the government's attitude towards it. This now is becoming and will be a, a key domain for you moving forwards. And I'm interested to know where, where do you think we are with respect to how much movement can be made to put some like put more studies together to figure out some of this stuff and also where do you aim to try and get that well i think uh it's often been talked about in psychedelic field that there's this this boulder and when is it going to start moving down the hill when is the momentum going to kick in I do think that momentum is starting to kick in. Particularly, I'm not sure if everyone is aware, but both MDMA and psilocybin have been declared breakthrough therapies by the American FDA, or Food and Drug Administration, which is a really important step, because not only will the FDA be supporting the movement of these drugs from unknown or illicit to medicines, they provide feedback and advice more quickly to the, group, the research groups achieving these studies. So it's a really exciting step and something that I feel the research uh, and regulatory environment in Australia has listened to and really has to listen to. Because as these drugs are reclassified as medicines overseas, of course Australia will want to have the most cutting edge treatments because I feel that we are ultimately an innovative country and psychedelics are truly an innovation in mental health treatment. They are next-generation mental health treatment. So I guess the limiting factor is still bridging this gap between academic conservatism or a lack of knowledge, which is definitely why My Medicine Australia was conceived, to educate and to share and to create a bridge or nexus between the regulatory environment, academics, clinicians and culture. The other really important thing is funding, because probably the most difficult part, but also a freeing aspect perhaps about psychedelic research, is that Big Pharma is not interested, because the patents on these substances have long gone. Also, there's the factor of between one and two, with MDMA, one to three, two to three treatments, and you're going to experience huge increases in freedom from whatever condition you were previously imprisoned within. So there's a lack, therefore, of profit drive behind psychedelics, mm -hmm. which means that MDMA will be the second medicine ever to be brought to market through philanthropy, the first one being uh, another society-changing Discovery, RU486, was also was the first medicine to be brought to market through philanthropy. I hope psilocybin will be the third. Right, and so in Australia, what are the, which are the substances you're targeting as the ones to move forward? Well, the TGA generally wants to see at least a small con proof of concept trial within Australia 
before they approach reclassifying substances. So that's why we need to have trials for psilocybin and for MDMA here before we can expect reclassification to occur. And things are going to shift when phase three results come out, because currently MAPS, the body that have been moving forward with MDMA therapy for PTSD, they've currently just started their phase three trials. Mm -hmm. There's also phase two trials of psilocybin going on worldwide. So as these studies move forward, these large phase two and phase threes, we will see some shifts, but we do need to be doing research here to appeal and get the approval of our regulators. And for that, we need funding. Right. So one of the most challenging things about, one of the most necessary things to do with respect to moving culture forward in a healthy way, I think is getting the individual level done right, which just means to have honest conversations with the people in your lives, to be honest with yourself too, which is also very, very difficult. <laughs> and to be able to have, you know, an honest conversation about difficult topics. This doesn't have to, like, there's many difficult topics in society right now. Psychedelics in lots of ways, I think there's a lot of people on the ground who recognize that the tides are turning. There are topics in society today that are also controversial. The relationship between masculinity and femininity is one that I'm looking forward to having some talks on. Politics is always difficult. The relationship between religion and science. Having these conversations at the dinner table for many, many people is a difficult thing to do. And having conversations about psychedelics at the dinner table can be a very difficult thing to do. And it's vital. And it's vital. And a practical thing that helps in that regard is to be able to differentiate a psychedelic from other drugs. So how would you differentiate? There's a lot of things, there's a few things I want to touch on, but well, I mean, the, one of the first thing was you mentioned uh, being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I do think that one of the great things about psychedelics is they kind of force you to be honest with yourself. Right. It's often been said that they, if they sort of put up a mirror to who you are right now. Mm -hmm. So there is that aspect which I think is really important, this idea of self-confrontation. I think that's also one of the reasons people can be a bit trepidatious or anxious. Mm -hmm. oh, and also because it's not necessarily a clear mirror, right? The message you might get back is one that uh, you should take with great importance, but it's often not going to be a message where it's like, oh yeah, I got that. I can just translate that into my life immediately. It's all very, very clear. And the experience, of course, is taking place largely imagistically. And like, I suppose, growth and development in life, being honest with yourself is something that takes time. And so the feedback you get is something that you have to work with. Yeah, so in coming to your point of responsibility, um, as well. Going back to that journal article, the importance of context in psychedelic experience, there was a call out by the researcher Robin Carhart-Harris for the psychedelic community because we are at this point where that boulder is starting to roll down the hill. We are at this turning point. There is a, there is a, there is still a risk that something could go very wrong in a trial and these medicines could be delayed or there is a risk that people become increasingly concerned about 
deaths at Rainbow Serpent, which are very rarely, if ever, if ever caused by a psychedelic. It may be implicated in a combination of many drugs, but the safety profile of psychedelics is incomparable to really any other substance. So safety profiles is one core differentiating feature. And there's good information on this. I can't point you in the direction of that right now. I know all David Nutt. David Nutt. David Nutt, who will be here in Melbourne next week, did go. the famous uh, comparison of the harm of drugs study for the British government, which he was acting in, as uh, the advisor for drugs to the British government at that point, and after which he was fired for basically telling the truth, which was psilocybin and MDMA were fairly harmless and drugs that we can, well, that society at least consumes very regularly, like alcohol and tobacco, were right on the other end of the scale at the most dangerous in the same ballpark as heroin and crack cocaine. So that's, that's something we can be aware of, that psychedelics are safe for the body. But as you said, responsibility and uh, the mind and setting so back to that journal article, there was a call out by Robin Carhart Harris for the psychedelic community, for those of us who are already, have already experienced or who will experience or who are going to take psychedelics. I've often thought about the responsibility of the rule breaker. Mm. I first discovered it at a Vipassana. Well, it's probably not true, but I first became truly aware of it at a Vipassana retreat where I really wanted to write. At Vipassana, I'm not sure if you're aware, it's a, a, very, um, a very strict, you have to wake up and go to sleep at certain times, eat at certain times, no talking at all, no form of communication, you look down at the ground because, well, 10 days of silence, a, an eye gaze can, mean, can ricochet in the mind if you've been quiet for, well, six, seven days with no interaction. So there's... You have to be very careful with how you affect others. And I really wanted to write. You were not, you're not meant to write. I really wanted to, I was having some really profound thoughts and I thought I might lose them. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe at nighttime I'll write my book under the covers. So I thought, oh, actually, there's a scratching noise of the pen. Might, might be heard by the girl in the bed over the curtain. And maybe that will confuse her. Maybe she, or maybe I want to write. Or you know, that person's breaking the rules. What does that mean for me? So I ended up writing in the shower <laughs> at Vipassana. Um, I tell this story because it made me realize the responsibility of the rule breaker. And that is, if you break rules, you better break them like they didn't need to be there in the first place. Well, and on that note then, we're going to conclude the first part of this evening. We started a little late, but we'll still do a 15, 20 minute intermission and then we'll come back where I invite anyone who wants to, to ask a question. And then also I want to experiment with a forum type component, which involves if any of you guys want to answer a question, then yeah, indicate that and maybe come along and share something. It's, that's the sort of thing that can go disastrously wrong, I suppose. <laughs> um, and so Melissa and I will like answer, I suppose, a fair chunk of them. But if someone does feel like they really resonate with a particular question has something to add then i welcome you to come and share that so anyway thank you so much for your attention it means an awful lot for you to come out and and, and be here so thank you and thank you to melissa thank too. you
All right, so what I've done here is set up a microphone there and somehow looks off in like a, in a strange I don't think that's particularly how it should look but it works and so if you have a question to ask about anything at all ask it and if we can't answer it we can't answer it but if we can we will try so anytime anybody wants to come up please go ahead Hello, Hello. Very spontaneous. Hi. Please. I'm not going to introduce myself. Anonymity. Okay. Um, thank you for the chat this, this evening. My question is, so you were talking before about the phase two and phase three studies and how it's looking for the future, but I'd like to know less, less science, more your opinion. When do you think will, the day will come that people can actually go to a trained psychotherapist and have access to psilocybin or MDMA or ketamine, or if you want to answer them individually based on where they're at in phase two, three trials. Remember, not science, more just your opinion, your intuition. Well, with MDMA, it's likely to be a medicine in 2021. And with the question about therapy, a trained therapist, so that also brings into question the need to train therapists. And that's actually one of the focuses of My Medicine Australia. We're kind of here to look at the clinical outcomes, look at the clinical research and find ways of translating that to therapeutic practice. So in the next year, we hope to start creating a therapist training program. And these therapists initially will be able to practice in the trials. Also, they, can't, they may just have the extra knowledge, so they could be integration psychologists, may not be able to immediately practice psychedelic therapy until regulatory approval has occurred. In terms of a, a timeline, I'm, I'm not really sure. I feel that if we're able to get a proof of concept study for MDMA off the ground in Australia, we won't be that far behind the US. So they're expecting, MAPS is expecting 2021 as the release for MDMA. So maybe a year or two after that, Australia can follow behind. We hope to get everything lined up behind the scenes for a pretty quick follow-up on the American deadline. And as for psilocybin, I imagine it's going to be a few more years after that. The breakthrough therapy status is a really positive sign, but we do need to have phase three trials move forward too. So that will be maybe a five-year mark. You know, that, that's very ballpark. That's for psilocybin. And these are also only for particular indications, which is one of the, the complications. For each indication or treatment or mental illness, or disease that we're treating, you need to have studied it. So we need to, have, for, to treat OCD with psilocybin, we need to do phase three trials, phase two trials for OCD. Because it will be a slightly different treatment protocol after all as well. So first of all, MDMA is gonna be treating PTSD. The phase two trials in, for psilocybin are treatment resistant depression, and then I know that MAPS has plans, I think this is a really exciting one, also a really sweet one for couples therapy in the future or conjoint partner therapy because an interesting thing about PTSD and trauma is it doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the ecosystem and the people around that individual. So currently they have they've been looking at trials where not only the person who suffers from trauma is being treated with MDMA but their partner is too. And therefore, that partnership can find better ways, better solutions of healing and growing in the face of the difficulties that occur when you're in a relationship with somebody who does have a history of trauma. So I think that one's a really lovely one, another indication.
So when you say 2021 for MAPS, would that come under the rubric of PTSD? PTSD, so, so complex PTSD, PTSD, anything that has, there's a history of trauma. And so do you have to, would you have to get a prescription from your local doctor onwards to that? It would be would basically be up to their discretion. with PTSD. Yeah. And then it would be, there would be a psychedelic therapist trained. And they currently in America, there is a, quite a few training programs. One's uh, by the California Institute of Integral Studies, CIIS. And also MAPS has their training programs. They're currently training therapists in America and also in Europe. There's actually a couple of Australian psychologists who have already done the training with MAPS in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they can help us in the creation of our own therapy training program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It does raise, this might be a bit of a unnecessary concern, but it's frustrating still. And as good as the movement forward is, it is still frustrating that one would have to be diagnosed with PTSD if say some of their issues were not PTSD related, but still other issues that could be helped, whether it's depression, some other affliction. So obviously we want to get things moving across all fronts where there looks like it, you know, it's relevant to do so. But PTSD is obviously a real thing and trauma is obviously a real thing. But recognizing oneself as a victim, treating oneself as a victim can be something that is problematic when, when it's overdone. I don't have a great point to make here other than to just potentially point to a problem with having people look to recognize, you wouldn't want people to take on an issue that they maybe didn't have as much to try and help with another issue. It's kind of frustrating that you have to still go through different hoops. Like well, go through. There's a few things there. Mm -hmm. First thing is these labels that we use to classify mental illness or categories of behavior that aren't necessarily always accurately uh, given or diagnosed and or the sense of taking on a role after receiving a diagnosis. I am a depressed person, I have depression, I am a victim, I have PTSD. Well, that, that's a storyline. And there, it's also, in terms of experience, it's a cluster of behaviors. It's a cluster of behaviors. I think it's really important to recognize that we only developed all these labels, these clusters of these clusters of behaviors in the last century. In fact, probably more like in the last 60 years or so. And um, so it's not a, a definitive bucket that someone should right. really right. I think that's a super important message. Yeah. Call themselves as an identity. It's a useful cluster. So, okay, so if I have this these clusters of a few of these clusters of behavior. I have symptoms or I have behaviors that relate to OCD or ADHD. And then with that bucket that you've now most closely associated yourself with, there are treatments, there are particular observations in brain activity that you can say is maybe my category. Mm -hmm. So it's not a definitive label. It's a, it is useful still. It's useful. And I think that this, uh, this movement from calling oneself with PTSD, the, the shift from victim to survivor is really a really important one. No one consciously calls themselves uh, or wants to have a victim-based mentality, but it is a consequence of the certain neurochemical changes that occur after trauma. 
as I said before, the self-repeating, self-fulfilling storylines. Yes, that's no doubt true. And this will take us off topic a bit, but I'm going to do it anyway. It is the case that quite a pervasive lens people use to view the world at the moment is one that divides the world up into groups where some of those groups are inherently oppressed by other groups. And so one's identity becomes seminally, why don't I use that fucking word? One's identity is taken to be that group identity of an oppressed group when there may be real individual trauma that's occurred in their lives and that's all entirely relevant. But it is an unfortunate case that there are ways of viewing the world that box people up into these categories before they engage with their individual experience to the extent required for the kind of growth and transformation we're talking about. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I have a few thoughts on that. And I think well, one point is that there is such a thing as multi-generational trauma. And my first thought also is with trauma on a neurological level, it traps that person in the past. It traps that person at the point at which the trauma occurred. They lose a relationship with themselves in the present moment and in the future. I think this can occur from an incident. It can occur from multiple incidents, say a domestic abuse, something like that. It can also occur on a, on a generational level of, of passed down emotional habits of parents and things like that. So the first thing we need to do, when it, whatever, when it, if we're trying to strike up a dialogue which is present and, and forward orientated, is try and help people to build that relationship with themselves in the present mm -hmm. and in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting, um, neurologically, the place that we store our self-concept as it is now and in the past is located in one area, the default mode network, which we discussed before, whereas the future self, the forward-moving self, is actually located somewhere else. It's located in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, further forward and more lateral, and that's actually the area that is generally associated with other people. So when we're thinking about our future self, on a neurological level, it looks like we're thinking about somebody else. So that really is a relationship then. That's a, that really is a relationship. And what's also interesting is that in depression and in trauma, our ability to access the othering area of the brain is diminished. And in trauma, even the current self is diminished. So. If you can't know yourself in the present or in the future, how can you build a relationship or a trajectory of where you want to go? Mm -hmm. Which is one of the powers of these medicines. Mm -hmm. Under the influence of psychedelics acutely, we see increased communication between these two regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. And we also see that after a psychedelic experience, participants were more accurate about their future projections in terms of outcomes in their lives. And this was measured in the psilocybin study by Imperial. This is the same study that showed that with one large and one small dose of psilocybin, so two doses, 
patients who had treatment-resistant depression, so this is depression that's been treated by multiple antidepressants and other forms of therapy, and all attempts have failed, they had a 67% rate of alleviation of being free from their depression at a one-week follow-up, at a three-month follow-up. It started to decrease slightly around that point, but it was still significant. Uh, so that's, that's interesting, developing the relationship with your future self and therefore having a more accurate prediction uh, about your own behavior and who you can be. I think they're beautiful thoughts. And so just in closing to tie what I mentioned just before, what's I think most important is that we recognize every individual's capacity to take ownership of their own lives as a essentially divine fundamental capacity. Now, it's difficult because there are some individuals who are particularly embattled by life, by their experiences, such that they cannot find, they cannot access that space to move from agency. And those people, of course, require care, right? They require care. But it is a frustration of mine that we can be too ready to define ourselves as victims or oppressed due to our membership in a group, whatever minority group that is, sometimes a group as large as women. It's, it's so necessary to engage in your own experience and to recognize the agency you have in your life to become, to I, make your life what I totally agree. And in fact, I had a conversation during the break with a, another woman here who was really pleased, another woman who's really interested in the science of psychedelics and follows researchers and organizations on Facebook, Twitter, podcasts, whatever it is. And she remarked how few female speakers there are in the academic world of psychedelics. So it's rec it is recognizing your capacity, and I did recognize my capacity to become the person and contribute in the way that I wanted to be, and wanted to be able to do. But there's also important to rec recognize the current state of affairs. Yes. And there, there is a, there is clearly a, um, dis a gender disbalance in psychedelic science. And, um, well, I think that that's not necessarily the problem with psychedelic science. I think it's probably more reflective on a pattern in society at large. And I do think this self-awareness and this agency to move forwards regardless of the current conditions, regardless of the patterns that you see, you can, you can be and contribute in any way that appeals to you personally. Yes, I think a message of individual empowerment is, is, is appropriate. And the point is only the frustration when an individual doesn't recognize their own power and capacity due to a different set of ideas about their skin color or gender or what have you. Now, Which is partially defined by experience and partially defined by as a self-story. And yes. these are stories that that are underpinned in society. Well, yes, I mean... Which we can only become aware of by noticing the patterns, like noticing this disparity of female voices in psychedelic science, noticing the pattern of intergenerational trauma in our native people's communities. I think all this stuff is important to notice. I'm going to 
say that it's not self-evident to me that the absence of women in psychedelic science is due to something one would call oppression. That may well be a factor, I don't know. We see differences in where men and women pop up in the world and the professions they choose for many different reasons. This is a conversation that has been had a lot online and there's some really good stuff out there. And it's complicated. There is a strong biological and psychological argument to be made for differences in temperamental proclivity between men and women that aren't entirely due to social construction. If that's the case, then you would expect differences in the number of people that go towards different professions. This is not to say that we should oppress people into choosing one or another thing. It's just a recognition that sometimes we make different choices. So it's not self-evident to me that we would expect a 50-50 split across every area in society. This is really an absurd thought when you think about it. There are some professions that are entirely male-dominated that, I mean, I don't know why the hell you'd want to go into at all. The ones where you're more likely to die doing outside hard manual labor, like climbing telephone wires and what have you. And is that partially because there is a narrative in society that men ought to be brave and re more reckless and more um, strong and that their lives in some sense, because they don't bear children, are worth less on a protective level? Is this, one, is this the reason why? Because there is this narrative? I think this narrative plays some role. But I don't think that I don't think that all narratives are arbitrarily constructed and not grounded in some adaptive reality, some adaptive evolutionary don't play some adaptive evolutionary function, and that our physiology bears out our better suitedness to one kind of thing or another. Um, so I think both things are going on. And when there is a narrative that is preventative of an individual from taking the agency towards what they want to be in their lives, this is a problem. The only point I'm making is that it's far from self-evident and in fact extremely unlikely and even unnecessary why we'd want to see a 50-50 split in anything. We don't see a, you see a 50-50 split in things very, very rarely like... It, not asking for a 50% split in every... I'm, I'm not, not asking for that. But I am highly aware of my own experience as a, as a woman who studied science and the feeling that I should maybe buy some glasses to be taken more seriously. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, my questions are same topic, but a little different. Um, because of the efficacy of mushrooms and MDMA, my question is about mescaline. Um, because from my understanding, experientially and from the chemical structure, uh, it's a little bit of both. Mm. So can you explain, like, do, have they done any studies what it actually does to the brain? And like, would that be a more useful tool combining them or for like different treatments, if you care to elaborate? Yeah, I think this is a really great question, a very astute observation. It's actually a, a deeply felt 
topic of mine for multiple reasons. Mescaline is a, is a very interesting psychedelic, and I don't have just the affection purely because it was the first one I heard of in the doors of perception. That's not the only reason. It comes down to also, as you say, the pharmacological level. It has um, traits that do compare to MDMA. In fact, um, I'm sure you'll remember the name of this receptor after this. It was assumed for a long time that the receptor that MDMA most activated or had the highest affinity, we would say affinity to describe binding pattern, was a serotonin receptor. In fact, no. It's a I'm a dazzling receptor. I'm a dazzling. I'm a dazzling MDMA. You probably you probably remember it. And not many other psychedelics do have a high affinity for this receptor. Mescaline is one. Uh, DOM is one. Mescaline more so than DOM. So if if we we don't know this, we don't currently we don't have the neuropharmacology knowledge to say that I'm a dazzling does this. However, we have the experiential correlation that MDMA is a very heartfelt, uh, love-inducing, safety-inducing, and the safety of the MDMA experience is really what underwrites its uh, power as a therapeutic tool. Trauma and PTSD being characterized by a lack of safety, a feeling of vulnerability, being a victim. When you're put into this loving space through MDMA, you, and you remember the memories of your trauma because the way the brain actually processes memories is it, just, it doesn't just get it out of the file, read it, and put it back in. No, it takes the file out, rewrites it, and then throws away the old one every time you remember something. This is the um, one of the potential weak points of our memory that we're constantly rewriting them whenever we remember them. But one of the strengths for MDMA as a therapeutic tool in that when you remember your trauma in a safe place, feeling like you're in a loving environment, you rewrite that memory with this felt sense and the trauma, the sting is removed. So if that does have some relation to this receptor that MDMA does have the highest affinity to, then mescaline is a very interesting therapeutic target. It also has a nice duration, uh, similar to psilocybin, less long than LSD. Has there been any studies? No. no. And um, I guess one of the things that I'd like to see in Australia, psychedelic research, is it's really wonderful that we have the St. Vincent's trial, end-of-life anxiety. Palliative care is such a difficult field. Emotionally, for, the, for both the doctors, the individuals and their families, I'm so glad that we're going to have this really powerful bridge at this point of both the individual's life and their community's life to support them through this transition. But I would love to see Australia engaging in novel research of our own making, our own flavour. And I do think using mescaline as a target would be a really exciting thing for Australia to do. I support PRISM uh, researching mescaline. <laughs> Me too. Me too. We, we, we have discussed it. It's just to bring an entirely new drug to market is very expensive. Uh, I had a conversation with Rick Dublin, who's the executive director of MAPS, not too long ago, and he estimated that it, over the course of all those years, it will have taken around 30 million US dollars 
to have broad MDMA to market. That's over the course of decades, potentially. And it was go it's going much faster for psilocybin. I think because a lot of that academic conservatism is now worn down, there's a lot more of uh, a receptive nature in the field, both from clinicians and from culture itself. So with that in mind, it probably wouldn't be as expensive, but it is in that ballpark. It's very expensive to bring a drug to the market. But it's a very rational observation that, MD that mescaline could be a really profound target. Um, something I haven't heard uh, tonight uh, you talk about is um, ayahuasca, and I, I wanted to ask about that, and also perhaps um, the, the practices of shamanism, so what the indigenous tribes people use in addition um, to the psychedelics, so, you know, the smudging, the Icaros. I haven't, you know, I saw they did the clinical start, um, trial in Brazil with ayahuasca, which is very promising for depression, but I just thought it'd be interesting to hear your comment on ayahuasca and, and shamanism in general, and if you think MAPS might incorporate some sh um, shamanism into their studies. Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting perspective to look at the past and see how these medicines have been used, and in fact, have been used for a very long time by both different cultures and even our own cultures, if you somehow relate to the European Greco-Roman tradition uh, where the Eleusinian mysteries existed and was likely fueled by something very similar to LSD. So that's within our own tradition. Plato was quoted as saying that it was uh, one of the most important parts of ancient Greek culture. Cicero, a Roman scholar, was quoted as saying that it was a civilizing aspect of ancient Greek culture. So that's interesting. So there was traditions even that we can look at from back then. And we do have some records of what they did for their seven-day Eleusinian mystery ceremony and ritual. And then we have cultures such as the Peruvian culture with ayahuasca for centuries have been using the brew containing both DMT and hamalas, which are MAOIs, which inhibit the breakdown of DMT in the stomach, so it, DMT can last much longer. I definitely think looking at the setting that they use is really valuable. We have lessons to learn, such as the music, such as um, group work. I think group work is very interesting and something that hasn't really been explored as much in studies yet. It's quite a solo journey. So I definitely think that there is multiple ways to combine therapy with psychedelics. And we'll have to decide and look at for each indication, for each um, treatment, what is most suitable. For example, with OCD, maybe would a, would a degree of exposure therapy, would a, would a combination of psychedelic therapy with virtual reality where they're faced with whatever certain things that trigger the responses in them, would that be useful? So in that, and you, okay, so I mentioned virtual reality from shamanism, and you can, so you can tell that I'm not at all restricted to where this comes from. I think that ancient traditions certainly have value, but I also think we can make our own traditions and we can combine technology, we can combine things like biomarkers and uh, feed, like live biofeedback, things like, so for OCD, what I think of instantly is being aware of that person, so if we're gonna combine virtual reality, really checking in with that person's heart rate and breath rate to know when they've reached that point of, oh, I just, I just can't, versus 
I'm still able to process this and, and engage. So a combination of looking at the past and looking at the future and looking holistically at the body, not just the mind. And ayahuasca, yeah, it's, it's a really powerful substance and there's really interesting trials in how it alleviates depression. Also, I think that it was with ayahuasca that we were shown that after ayahuasca, certain mindfulness traits were found to be increased, like a lack of reactivity, acceptance, and knowing the, the profound effects that we do observe from frequent mindfulness meditation practice scientifically. I think that's a really interesting comparison. If you're predicting that in 2021, MDMA, and then after that, psilocybin will be used in a, uh, a medical sense, and then at the start you were saying that you don't want uh, these things sold on every corner, 7-Eleven, but there's obviously a big space between those two including yes. personal use, or one of a bit of a cliche word, spiritual use. Do you see these being able to, like in, after 2021, will that open a space for them to be more freely accessible? And what about the sort of the stigma that's attached to them just as being purely party drugs? And how in 2021, for example, MDMA, will that be seen as, as a an alternate medicine or is it something that's going to sort of enter the mainstream and become acceptable or are we going to be looking strangely at these people that are that are taking MDMA for these uh, concerns? I think it's increasingly going to enter the mainstream and the fact that in terms of clinical trials we are just seeing such better results than current treatments allow. It's just a matter of wearing down that conservatism that does exist with clinicians and the reservations of associations with the past and the countercultural movement with the 60s and 70s, which I think is already shifting. And I guess I think intentional psychedelic use with, with the desire to grow yourself is valuable not just for people who have mental illnesses but for the betterment of well people too. There is... There's, everyone has something that's unresolved. Everyone has something that they would like to grow in themselves, would like to change in themselves to become a happier, more loving, more whole person. I think that those seeking psychedelics for those reasons should have access to them in settings which are therapeutic and safe. With respect to the spiritual question, which is involved here when we talk about this move towards wholeness because the experience of change at that kind of radical level and the experience of connection to yourself, to connection between self and then embodiment of that in the world, start using spiritual language very quickly to encapsulate the quality of these experiences and certainly their meaning for you in your life. How to mediate people's relationship with their spiritual capacity is how to mediate that as a society, how to approach that as an individual, how to use substances as tools in that pursuit. These are questions that we do not have good answers for. We are in a process of, I believe, building the forums for discussion about just what's going on with this kind of stuff to take place. The difference between regulatory approved therapy using psychedelics 
and the availability of substances to aid spiritual development those two things in some in some ways are so close together but from a legal perspective so far apart what is, what is what is spiritual and i definitely even still coming from a scientific background some sometimes get a strange taste in my mouth when i say the word but i don't think it's a dirty word even for a scientist because we can we can map that territory there are qualities of it and i think what underwrites it is a sense of connection to something greater than yourself and that definitely doesn't have to be any kind of deistic god it can just be nature or the universe or whatever it is that drives you to want to reach out connect grow and be part of something so i think that the spiritual is very intimately tied with the therapeutic so and i guess also referring to recreational i want to define the difference between recreational if we go back to the etymology of the word recreate recreational that's this that's a it's a kind of a fueling that's a kind of a growing that's a kind of a stopping and pausing and seeing where we want to go it's a time for reflection i think the rec- the word recreational unfortunately has a lot of negative connotations and the negative connotations i'm not an advocate for anything to do with psychedelics being there for escape for um that this attitude that i sometimes see in particularly other drugs but drug culture of um getting messed up or getting or whatever they whatever it is that people say i definitely don't resonate with that i think that recreation stopping and pausing and looking at where you want to go is something different and the spaces should be built for people who want to improve themselves in a therapeutic way even if they don't have a very defined label just because they want to become a better person I think that I think that's all reasonable and beautifully put from the perspective of legality I think they're different issues and I would imagine that a push towards that kind of idea being allowed I'm not sure what kind of approach that's going to take in part I mean it's there's going to be a different flavor it will have to be at a different point of collective awareness and I think that has to take place at an individual level and it is a different point in the turning of the tide where it won't be where where the where research into therapy will have played a massive role to begin with but we'll have to see some other kind of set of ideas a different kind of front of understanding take place in order to get to this place well I what I'm trying to what I am saying is I'm just defining what I think is a therapeutic context. That's all I'm advocating for, a therapeutic context right now. I think that as people see the results of phase, you know, we're we're at a point now where not everything is confirmed. But when we do have phase 3 trials completed, I think that that would be a really interesting point to just stop and reflect about what is the ideal therapeutic context for psychedelics. Um so touching on the topic of group therapy and ayahuasca um and doing this sort of medicinal work with a shaman there have been some research that have said that 
this can indeed bring up trauma and can help integrate, pop that trauma bubble, so to speak, so you can integrate the lessons and make you a new new. But there's also arguments that say that people who have dabbled in these sort of psychedelics have also seen a part of themselves, i.e. the shadow side, that has traumatized them even more and has not allowed them to go down the path of self-development and has blocked them as a matter of fact. So what I, my question really is, because having been in these circles a few times and witnessing many, a plethora of healing and also detrimental work that has been done from just being too infused with the energies around you, can you walk us through the correct process of how to process trauma in the state of such a heightened psychedelic experience so you can bring that down and integrate it into your reality and make it the new you? Because being at that state is so tender, it can actually be such a detriment that you can walk away from this going, I'm never going to touch any kind of psychedelic ever again. Or you would want to delve even deeper into your psyche and your shadow and you want to develop that even more, whichever way it goes. But uh, speaking to the experts now, what is the correct and most safest approach to being in that state of mind, discovering that trauma, and then integrating that back into your reality in the safest most possible way? I do want to get to that question, but I also want to touch on, like, this is, this is why we're doing one indication at a time and why it's important to find the therapeutic context, the dose for each treatment. Because we haven't researched classical psychedelics like psilocybin or ayahuasca with PTSD yet because of this risk of re-traumatization, which is one of the reasons that PTSD is notoriously difficult to treat. So that's why it is important to follow we have to wait for each indication to be put through the rigor of a clinical trial before we sort of jump the gun. We want to create the systems that best treat and best plan for each kind of experience that a person may have, which is why I, want to, I do want to clarify as well that this idea of the betterment of well people has to happen very slowly and with trials and with... Um, practice protocols being developed. And when it comes to PTSD, it is really hard because of this really narrow window of therapeutic tolerance. That's why things like exposure therapy are really difficult, and particularly with certain types of trauma like sexual assault, there is, a, for exposure therapy, a 30% dropout rate, and only 50, I think 49% of participants have any clinical benefit. That's it's not very good. Uh, whereas MDMA, there is generally in the with all types of PTSD, an 83% chance of MDMA alleviating the PTSD. And with that experiential confrontation, I think there's a lot at play here. There's a dysregulated nervous system. There's hyper arousal going on. So I think the first our first step is to become aware of your biology. Find, practice slowly ways of noticing when your heart rate is, is going up. This is, this is just for general PTSD advice. This is going to be applied to any situation, whether it be seeing a trigger on the street, a loud noise. Becoming aware of the body, 
through slowly training in an awareness-based practice with particularly with PTSD, with a good teacher, with a psychologist. This is not something that should be done by yourself because even meditation can re-trigger people with PTSD. It's a really delicate condition. So having someone who can help you become aware of your own body and when you're starting to go into a trauma state, so you see things, people cramping up, they're changing your position, moving, becoming small, protecting yourself slowly noticing these physical symptoms and being able to shift out of them. First awareness, then a, then a reopening. Also, the way we talk to ourselves is really, is really important. Noticing what kind of voices are occurring as you're noticing yourself entering a trauma state. Is there someone in your head, part of you putting you down? Can you talk to them? That seems a bit strange, I know, but one of the increasing popularity is that there's a therapeutic protocol called internal family systems, which is particularly relevant for trauma, because as we see in trauma, there's a fractioning of the psyche often, that there's a part of the person that was present at the moment of trauma that becomes really stuck there. Then there's the protector who tried to come in and be the savior and said, block off all your emotions, we'll be fine, dissociate, I'll be here holding the fort. And then, so there's that, that part that was wounded, there's the protector, then there's a the part that just wants to be distracted. There are actual, there's patterns in the way the psyche becomes fractured. And sometimes these programs, these parts can become really, really entrenched and can end up putting that person down, or taking them back to the moment of trauma, very at times where they are triggered, but it's not always obvious where the trigger is coming from. Going back to that idea of relationship and creating a relationship with these different aspects of yourself, talking it through with yourself slowly in your own mind, or even out loud in a point of PTSD crisis, I think is really valuable. And having a meditation background slowly trained really carefully with somebody, I think is a really, really important and valuable tool for anyone, but for particularly with PTSD. And when it comes to confronting parts of ourselves that we find unsavory, I guess um, it's always a, if you attach yourself to another part of you, you can go there more easily if you call on your strengths and call on the parts of you that you know have the capacity to grow and seek to grow. You, you have, there might be shadows, but you also have allies within yourself. You also have beauty within yourself and you also have a, a, a poetic, lively being that you're cultivating. And being, I find that to deal with the shadows, we also have to develop our relationship with that part of ourselves, the forward, forward moving, forward flowing, aspirational part of ourselves. Because they can be an ally in darker times that we can call upon. When help us be prepared to, to stand face and face in the eye the parts of ourselves that we either wish weren't there or need extra help to deal with. Growing both aspects and being in relationship with that, I think, is really helpful. That's a stunning answer. Really, really beautiful, Melissa, I think. I'm not really going to add to that, but I'm interested at the philosophical level or how to... There's another level of categorizing your own inner relationship with yourself when what you encounter 
can be so confronting, anomalous, drive you into a state of fear or chaos. I think there's some mixture of, of, uh, of paying attention to that in a challenging way and then paying attention to that in a way of release or acceptance that seems to be at play. Sometimes there's a time to wake up and identify with a particular content of experience and live that out and feel it. And other times you sort of, at least in my experience, have to just breathe and watch. But this integration of what you can encounter in yourself that is scary or anomalous to you or disgusting is so key. Recognizing the, the different valences, the positive and negative feelings, all part of one adaptive system. But then, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point about voluntary exposure, I think is super crucial. And that's why set and setting and doing this stuff with as much responsibility and awareness as possible is so appropriate because there's no help whatsoever in throwing a baby into an ocean. So got to give that thing swimming lessons. One more question, please. And then we'll, one more question, then we'll end. Okay, so I've heard of MAPS, PRISM, Imperial College London, and a bunch of whoever. Um, tonight's the first night I've ever heard of Mind Medicine, um, and I'm assuming that's based here in Melbourne. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so Mind Medicine Australia was first conceived of it just in the last year or so, and officially we opened as a charity late last year. And so we're a charity for health promotion for investigating, communicating, better understanding the potential of regulated and research-backed psychedelic medicines. And we seek to act as the hub or the nexus between academia, between clinicians, between the government, regulatory bodies, and also culture. And to create real shifts in the perception and awareness of how these medicines may help a large proportion of our population who are currently experiencing mental illness. So My Medicine Australia is actually a funding partner in the first Australian research trial with PRISM at St Vincent's. And we also seek to create a therapist training program in the future in a regulatory accredited environment for professionals. We also will be running events, a conference, a large-scale international conference, hopefully in the next year or so. And I guess we are born of the fact that we are entering a new paradigm for mental health and that psychedelics are definitely a key aspect of this new paradigm. And we also seek to incorporate other things like technology, biomarkers, virtual reality in time. We're seeking innovation in mental health. We're not, we're not only focused on psychedelics. It is our key interest area because there is so much potential. But in the future, we want to see how do we treat the patient holistically? I want to say holistically, how do, we treat, how do we treat both the body and the mind? Because they're so intimately related. So we hope to have in the future when there is a regulatory approved psychedelic medicine, we, we would like to have treatment centers that have a combination of psychotherapy, 
classes, both for well-being and psychological awareness. And um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting endeavor. I really appreciate all of you checking out the event next week and also just following us. And if you have skills you'd like to contribute, we are a charity and that we have a, lot of, a number of volunteers helping us. And this is something that we really need anyone who's interested in change in Australia to get on board with. And I echoed Tim's statements earlier, that this is a, a great dinner conversation. This is, this is a great conversation starter. And you'll be surprised by the reception that you get. I wear um, a psychedelic compound around my neck, and that's mainly to practice that first conversation about something that some people might see as impertinent. But by the end, as often the greatest scientific questions have been, first impertinent, it becomes pertinent when you communicate it. I have my dad in the audience. He's been a great supporter of my chosen career path and of my healing with psychedelics. And um, that first conversation was a little scary for me. My dad's uh, a lawyer, also a scientist, thankfully. And I've noticed, for example, my mom is less of a scientist. She's more of a feeler, more of a heart-centered person. So I had a different conversation with her. With my dad, I spoke of the research studies. I, I focused on the figures, the numbers, that 67% of people with depression, 83% of people with PTSD. With my mom, it was more of a story of hope and a story of lateral thinking that could change lives. So there's many ways to go about it, but I encourage all of you to share what, you've, what you know, what you've learned here, what you continue to learn with those around you, because that's how we can create real change. Beautiful. Well, MyMedicineAustralia.org Mind. Mind. All right, well, that brings this evening to a close. Thank you all very much for coming. Voiceclub.com is where you can stay in touch with what I'm doing with this project. That's where this conversation will be posted and there'll be links to what Melissa's doing there. In fact, Melissa has been on Voice Club a few times before. She had a wonderful conversation with Rick Doblin, which really is, I think, quite beautiful. It was recorded in Prague and that's something that's available to listen to online. We also had a conversation with Gabor Mate, which was interesting as well. That's available to watch online. And also with a guy called Dr. Matthew Johnson, who's one of the lead scientific researchers into this stuff right now. And on Sunday, I'm releasing a conversation with a guy called Dr. Torsten Passi, who's arguably the world's leading expert on psychedelic science. And that was an interesting conversation too. So there's lots of content out there and there will be more events like this in the future and about other topics as well. So please, I do invite you to go to voiceclub.com and sign up to the mailing list to stay in touch. And it would be lovely to see you all again. So thank you so much. And thank you, Melissa. It was thank wonderful you. to be with you. If anyone um, does want to volunteer or reach My Medicine Australia, the email's really simple. It's just hello at mymedicineaustralia.org.